I think the best CEOs are looking at how is their company going to be valued in the next round of financing, whether that's a series A, B, or IPO. And they are building the company so that it meets those metrics. Therefore, it's not about the amount of dollars they have in the bank or how long that company could survive with those dollars. It is how much money does it take us to get a customer? How much is that money is that customer going to give us this year, next year, subsequent years? And showing the, the machine of that, how are we investing to get these customer dollars is the thing that matters. Welcome to What Could Possibly Go Wrong, a podcast that takes an optimistic view towards startups, technology, and the future. You know, news outlets and social media sites prey on negativity, sensationalist headlines, and teardowns to drive up their revenue while driving down our belief in the future and our collective mental health. I'm Sahil Mansuri, founder and CEO of Bravado, the global network for sales. And I'm Ross Fubini, and I run XYZ VC. We're an early stage venture capital firm based here in San Francisco. This podcast is a humble attempt to offer an alternative to that pessimism. We are celebrating the founders building big, important companies and those that back them. So go on, ignore the naysayers. We know that building a startup is hard, really hard. So sometimes it's helpful to remind ourselves of what could possibly go right. It's what the best founders do to keep moving forward. Our hope is that if you invest one hour in listening to this podcast, that you walk away more fired up to build your business and have a clear path forward to success than when you started. Welcome to the pod. Let's dive in. For as long as I've worked in tech, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of camaraderie between uh, the employees of a tech company that I think is unusual for uh, a place of employment. In fact, it's become trendy at many tech companies to even speak about the employees as being part of the family. Um, you start to see some of these kooky names come up, like uh, folks who work at Zoom are known as Zoomies. Uh, I think Google started the trend with their Googlers. And it was all fun and game while, you know, the music was still running and everyone was getting funded and, you know, the every, every company's uh, stock price was going up and to the right. And then suddenly you had the great reset of 2022. And with that came, uh, of course, layoffs. And where I think, uh, you know, this intersects is when a company publicly posts about its layoff. And when they have done that, they've sometimes used these terms. You know, I've seen, you know, Zoom referred to Zoomies in their layoff, Gong referred to Gongsters in their layoffs. And that's leading to a lot of backlash, uh, both on social media, on traditional media, et cetera. Um, you know, in today's environment, CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook publicly saying we have way too many managers, not enough people doing the work. Elon, of course, you know, laying off 75% of Twitter and only keeping the quote unquote hardcore engineers who can actually write code. Uh, Twilio just did layoff this week for the second time in a few months. Uh, and their CEO, Jeff Larson, saying we got way too bloated and inefficient. 
And Airbnb's Brian Chesky uh, in his earnings call said, we were turning into the Navy instead of remaining Navy SEALs. And so when you're starting to see language like this coming out, uh, you know, what you're basically saying is we have a bunch of unproductive employees that are not good enough. And so we're going to cut them and get rid of them. Uh, it may not be the PC way of looking at it, but the difference between the Navy and the Navy SEALs is that the Navy SEALs are much better than the Navy. There's fewer of them, and each one is much, much better than the Navy, where the average skill set is just much lower. And so, you know, in a world in which founders and CEOs are basically publicly bashing their employees, you know, it kind of cuts through the an aura of family and gongsters and zoomies and googlers. And so I guess Ross, I want to turn it to you and say, you know, what sort of relationship should companies and founders build with their employees? How should uh, employees be viewing the relationship they have with their employer? Well, let's start first with some disagreements about what you said, and maybe I'll give you two. One is uh, an optimistic view is you talked about the the people that have been covered in the press releases, the earnings calls, one thing that's really nice is seeing on LinkedIn and other social media sites, ex-Googlers offering to help ex-Googlers and that, that kind of topic. So I think that's a good outcome of all this culture building is that there's actually this whole network of alumni that feel an affinity and a responsibility. So I think that this is one of the things that's good about being in a in a community. And I, and I don't want to to lose lose sight of that as a really good attribute. The second thing is is I disagree with your articulation of that great quip by by Brian of the you know we're too much Navy, not enough Navy SEAL because what you said is true. Any individual is more versatile and productive, etc. And that is true of the Navy SEALs, but you know the Navy is also necessary. Sometimes you need a, a whole lot of people in very specialized segments skills to accomplish a goal. And so I think what Brian was saying there is that the way that they've been operating was, well, as you said, too bloated, but that doesn't necessarily mean the people, the, the people are bad. I get how it gets bent that way. The thing that I think is really true to me is I feel very empathetic for everyone that's lost a job. If you ever lost a job or a friend had it's such a crappy ass feeling and you feel out of control and you want to go back and tell your, you don't want to tell your mom, your wife, your partner uh, that happened. It God, it sucks. That said, this idea that you could just have a job forever. I don't know, understand where that idea got into, uh, into companies. And I don't think it makes any sense. I, I really don't. Um, I think the idea of you're, you're in a company, you're doing a role that's it is it is just a, a job and you know companies cultivate this this spirit of we're doing it together which is I important but i don't think anyone should lose sight of the job um reed hoffman as ever uh an oracle on some of this stuff had the whole book called the alliance and that's what he called jobs is there's an alliance you're here for a time you're doing a certain role we want to get that outcome Together, we are allies. And we might even be allies for years. We might be allies through multiple jobs. But I think that that's more akin to what's going on. And so it's a bummer that people feel this, the, the whipsaw. It's more than a personal bummer. It might be a personal crisis. But I mean, for me, I just, I see it's a natural deflation of like companies being too big for their, for their, their market. And I, I think there's this media coverage that makes it sound so uh, dramatic in terms of decisions. And for me, it just seems so straightforward, right? Like we didn't need that factory. That factory got shut down. Yeah, but but I 
So I want to I want to actually go back to the point um, around the comments by CEOs, because while you may have a more optimistic view of it, I, I, I don't think it's a realistic view of it. So let's talk about Brian Chesky and huh? that comment. So you can, you know, here, here's him in his own words. I also think people should be lean. Small teams move faster than big teams usually. Obviously, there's too small to get anything done, but bigger teams need more meetings, more communication. It slows things down. So I think that team should be lean. And then again, this is him speaking. I think of us as having gone from like the Navy to the Navy SEALs. That was the metaphor I used. We're not going to have as many people but we're going to be lean, we're going to be focused, we're going to be disciplined, we're going to be much higher skilled, we're going to have a team of experts. And so if you are one of the people that got laid off, what does that mean about you? What is Brian Chesky saying about you if you are one of the people that got laid off? I think that he's saying that the kind of skills you had weren't the ones that they needed around on that project. Well, then why did they hire you in the first place? Because they had a different plan before. They had a different support plan. They had a different sales plan. We were going to go scale up our, you know, our host services. I think this is every every company that grew in COVID from 10 people to 100 to 10,000 to 22,000 is they were rising to capture the market. They were doing that through people. And now they're realizing that they can't spend that way because the metric is not just growth, it's efficiency in all these different areas. And I, I I, get that it's personal. This is not a heartless comment. But I also think what they're describing just could not be more straightforward from a business case. And this is someone like, I've laid off many terrific people and said to the remaining folks that you are the warriors that we're going forward with. And those people that I laid off were not bad. Some were. They were not bad at their job, most of them, but they just weren't the right fit for what we needed then and now. And I think I think every leader's gone through this. And I think there are some leaders that are they're doing it handedly or communicating poorly. But like I think the business facts aren't I just, everything you just read. I don't, I don't think it's contentious. I think it's. it's I it's I agree that it's not contentious, but I have a, maybe a little bit of a different perspective on it, which is that. Um, tech became cool and sexy and safe for a while there. Like, you know, there was this rise of these TikTok videos that got a lot of coverage from people who oh, worked yeah. at Facebook or LinkedIn who were like, here's a day in my life. And basically it was like, I get to work at nine. I go to work out at the corporate gym. I get a coffee at 11. Then I go for lunch. Then I do a meeting. Then I go for a spot eight. Then I have mimosas at five kind of vibe. And, and I think that tech became glamorized, not because it was hard work, groundbreaking technology, making a difference in the world, building something from nothing. I think it became the safe job. It became the high paying, great benefits, free food job. It was marketed that way because everyone was competing with Google and Facebook for talent and they were offering those things. And so you by default started offering those things and Google referred to their employees as Googlers. So you refer to your employees as XYZers or whatever. And so everybody kind of got soft and got cushy and got comfortable and 
and and and I and I say and I don't say that as a statement of um, putting others on the pedestal. I think this is also true for me, where you know we hired uh, in 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 through the mentality of as I think you said, and I think you were right. We hired at the mentality of okay, well, if ten people can deliver twenty widgets, then twenty people can deliver forty widgets or something like that. As opposed to thinking, well, these ten people are exceptional, so they can deliver twenty widgets. If I finding ten more exceptional people is going to be really hard, and in fact, we should probably try to not linearly scale costs. And like there was just a lot of um, hard business decisioning that wasn't done. And so now I think what you're seeing is that there are people in tech who actually don't belong here. I, I call them the tech tourists, the people who showed up for tech because it was cool. And now that tech is no longer cool, uh, is similar to crypto. I think crypto went through something similar a couple of years ago where crypto is really cool and now it's not. So the only people who work in crypto now really believe in it. And I think the same will happen in tech. Yeah. And by the way, this happened during the dot-com bust, same thing. Everybody came to the Bay Area to start a company. And I remember in particular, a good friend of mine had uh, two roommates and they were both, um, uh, both been, one had just finished medical school and one had finished pre-med and they both come here to, to start companies. And the reason was like, cause that's what you were supposed to go do next. And then you're going to go, I think one really wanted to just get rich. And the other thought that just like, that was the next step, the way that someone would leave, you know, Harvard and go work for McKinsey. He's like, well, this is just what you do. And you're, and you're right. I think this is the, um, I think I agree with everything you said about tech. It is for me now. This this reset is like, yeah, that was the game on the field, and now this is, this is this is everybody you know, uh, tightening up. What I don't think was ever happening is um, what we didn't see is early stage companies. I didn't see people living a lot of cushy lives there. I don't know where it breaks if it's or if it does break it. Like you know, if it's just about fifty people versus five hundred versus. 5,000, but most of the people in these early stage companies are still working damn hard. And even those where we pull back, it's like the, the scope of what the company's delivering is like, we need to do less, less things better is a big shift. It also goes again to the something that, that I believe is the excitement about tech cultures, tech companies, which is if you've got those small number of people building something that can really scale and a small number of people delivering something that gets used you know, all over the world, because of technology being global, of the the power of software, you can have, I don't know, was it 30 people that built WhatsApp? I think that's just incredibly exciting. You have 30 people when Salesforce, excuse me, 30 people in, in, in engineering when Salesforce went public, which was a show of what you could do with hosted software versus the thousands that worked at, you know, well, hundreds that worked at, at Siebel. And I think that's, a, yeah, I think this, this is, it goes back to this efficiency being good. And I think the tech tourists, Heading out is is probably uh, is probably a good thing overall. Yeah, I want to come back to where I think the moment of dissonance is, which is where we started this conversation. And so let's use an example that I think got a lot of press coverage, uh, and uh, rightfully so. The CEO of PagerDuty, Jennifer Tejada, announced layoffs at PagerDuty on January 24th. And she started the message with the words Dutonians, I think is how you would pronounce this. Which is just a very awkward name. I'm sure that's what they call themselves, but that's a that's a yeah, one, and, right? And then and then specific to that, you know, I regard Dutonians as more than employees. They are accomplished, deeply talented, bring themselves, blah, 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 blah. We are committed to supporting impacted Dutonians, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then she ended 
her layoff announcement with a quote from Martin Luther King. And so then that led to, as you can see, you know, New York Times and and Washington Post, and uh, it was it was dubbed the worst layoff email ever written. Yeah, because it's bonkers, right? Like it's utterly. Which led to the CEO having to publicly apologize, not just generally, but to her own company. Uh, about how she communicated the layoffs. And you can see Dutonians has been replaced with team. And I think this is what I'm trying to get to is this idea that, you know, in good times, you want to be Dutonians and pager duty against the world. And we're a family and we hashtag believe in ourselves, embrace, you know, whatever. And then, and then when reality hits, you know, you got to go back to team and you got to go back to like not quoting like fucking Martin Luther King and and like, you know, running a business. And I think that the problem is I'm willing to bet a lot of money because I've read the posts on LinkedIn that the employees of PagerDuty are like, wait a minute, I signed up for Dutonian and believe this and great perks and Jennifer being this kind, sweet leader and Martin Luther King quotes. And all of a sudden we're having layoffs and team and like productivity and like whatever, like I feel duped. I feel like, you know, you basically were living a lie. Like it was like the, like the curtain's been lifted up and now I realize who you really are. I've gotten text messages from sales reps at PagerDuty who have specifically told me that they're like, oh my God, like all of a sudden there's all this pressure to hit these unreasonable numbers and there's no way we're going to be able to. So like there's there's like a, a backlash because people feel like the CEO is changing face from who she represented the company to be to now what the company is because times are tough. But, you know, when she tries to find this middle ground, she gets, you know, rightfully, as you, as you cited, uh, gets, gets called out for the worst layoff email. And so like, this is the dis dissonance I'm talking about. Yeah. And two things, one, I mean, one is I think this is also you're switching from, you're seeing a leader who needs to switch from being a peacetime CEO to a wartime CEO, you know, different words, different leadership, possibly different team uh, around them to go, because it, it is just different verbiage. I really liked what you said about how you recruit and how you build what you tell people that they're for, there for. The second thing I want to say, which is interesting, we were talking about small teams earlier versus big teams. The funny thing is you need a lot of uh, the we're all in it, we're committed when it's small and you need to kind of keep that that cultural touchstone. It's such a big part of being being a startup. And then when you scale up, like you said, you keep using those words, those affinities, when in fact, you might, you know, you might be the size of a small city. And those same, uh, the same words actually, they're, they're not the same authenticity um, because you don't, because it isn't actually the, the cultural truth. You know, that, that group is going to, is going to get fired. That office is going to get shut down. You're not all there. Every person, you know, rowing the boat together. And that's a, that's a big cultural change, a big cultural change. So I think, I think this all for me comes down to, to leadership and leadership done well and not done, uh, not done well. Yeah. So, so I, <laughs> the email has a lot. There's a lot. There's a, <laughs> There's lot. a lot going on there. I, I always feel bad about pounding on people. This is my my defensive nature, and then you're like, oh man, 
that head of comms definitely got fired. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and and that's the thing is that is that it's it's almost laughable in hindsight, but with you have to rem- I, I think the thing that like we have to remember is that this is likely the way in which communication was delivered to the company for many, many years because every stock price was going up and to the right and right. there was endless funding and there was no real risk of death because you could just keep raising more and like no one was fired. There were millions of jobs. You were you had such a supply demand inequity. There were so few talented employees, so many jobs, so much money in the system that like you had to you had to you know basically put up a facade in order to recruit people and almost like make believe that this wasn't like a really 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 hard tough job which was a performance driven sport etc and so you know i guess now let's kind of getting away from the news commentary and maybe getting a little bit more tactical so ross you obviously advise and work with portfolio companies uh across a bunch of different stages but but a lot of early stage work how have you seen ceos in your portfolio i guess handle that transition from as you called it peacetime to wartime during this time uh, well have there been hiccups that you've seen have you, like what 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 are the changes and and suggestions you might have for an early stage founder or executive team that's listening to this podcast uh, and is trying to figure out how to navigate this themselves yeah we we we've seen a lot of people go go through it cuz i think every company from four people to 400 and onward has experienced has experienced this because they are either extending burn rate or trying to do fewer things better to show a more efficient business. The major one is pretty old school and it's having a very clear strategy of what we are trying to accomplish, showing everyone how that's a path that is going to be successful, period. Because that's what I think people want. They, they, they want a leader this is a very clear path and also an achievable path for how they're going to get there. A component of that is the planning that we've seen companies do. For example, we have some large companies that would never turn down a customer and are now getting brutal on, you know, what is the payback customer rate for this customer in this year? Not one day three years from now when we deliver two more products and this all makes sense. And mm-hmm. p- part of that is then all the people that sell to those folks, they're, they're, your job is going to go away. Um, the other thing that we've seen people do is as these teams are running, being very clear to, 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 to their teams about what success looks like right now in this organization. For example, we have a very, very, very good, thoughtful, empathetic sales leader who is basically churning half his sales teams every two months. And it's because what he said to people is instead of waiting for the full ramp and you know the, 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 the six month thing, I'm gonna look at these indicators that say, are you moving in the way that we want? And if you're not, he doesn't say, but it's true, is we think there are more people that we could hire that are going to work in this way, and we think these indicators of number of you know outbound leads you've cultivated, number of deals you've done, means you're going to be more likely to be successful. And we're just going to we're going to try and figure that out now. 
because you know at the end of the year we want to have more people in our org um, percentage-wise that are hitting their numbers. Um, you know more about sales than I do, but I think that's an example of a. Uh, He's doing a very good job because he's articulating the entire sales team this very high expectation. Here are the indicators to that expectation. Here's how I'm managing those those folks. Um, the, the, and then, by the way, the one thing that that um, that we're all selling readers leaders is to keep doing it. The people. It sounds again obvious, but it's like MBA style leadership 101. Is people want to then hear the update against the mission. Did we make? It's the Everest plan, and you know, are we at base camp? Did we make it to the first hurdle? Where's the ice ladder? You know, we're, we're all we're, again, we're all in this together. We're all we're all Googlers or what, what's what's the word from Pedro Duty again? Dutonians. Uh, Dutonians, which I think is like we're on duty, right? Like that's the that's that's, that's the right. idea. Uh, it is it is a mouthful. And, and by the way, this Keons didn't sound as good. So. <laughs> but by the way, this is I think the interesting thing is like then you're remounting that same cultural offensive, and it's not hey we're all here for the free lunch, but it's it's now we're all here to go be Navy SEALs together, right? So this is the, re the reality of the leadership past the point is you got to tell everyone that's there like you're the Navy SEALs. This is what we're gonna we're gonna this is what we're gonna go do. You're the Dutonians. Of, of of today or whatever is the story yeah and and so that's I, I, a crazy thing like the, the words work people want this they want to be part of something you just got to be i think in an authentic way uh which is tricky it's tricky well well so i want to uh there's a company um i'm not at liberty to share which one because i did not get their permission to to name them but there is a company uh that is doing extremely well kind of you know if you were to pick your top 20 best performing startups that everyone knows and loves and would want to buy secondary odd they would be very very high on this list um who's who were having a tough time hiring salespeople because everyone was having a tough time hiring salespeople, but now <laughs> their company is one of like the only, like, you know, you could, for every job posting that they put out, they get thousands of applications because, you know, they would be one of the safest places to work there. There's almost no risk of layoffs or being, I mean, like this company is exploding. It's doing great. And so the sales leader who had hired a number of sales reps that she believed uh, where she had uh, bought B talent at A prices, now suddenly realizes that the market has shifted and she can probably buy A talent at like C prices if she really wanted to. And so she pinged me uh, last month and she said, well, Sahil, I want to basically tell my sales team that if you're not the best of the best, I'm just going to fire you and replace you with someone better because I can get someone better on the market today. But I don't want to do that in a way that scares everyone off. And how do I actually do that? And, you know, I mean, she and I talked through a bunch of different options around it. And, but it's a hard problem because prior to, you know, January, her whole message to the team, I mean, well, first of all, you look at the team's uh, percent to quota, it's exceptional, right? It's uh, everyone's hitting quota, the product yep. is going off the shelves, et cetera. But she knows, she herself knows that just because you hit 120% on this team uh, doesn't mean that you're actually good at sales. Anyone could have hit 120%. And so she could basically hire someone for 20, 30, 40K less than you who could probably hit 150K or 150% in sales. 
and she wants to do that without like scaring people off. And she wants to do that without like creating a fear-based culture. And she wants to maintain the camaraderie, but she, you know, and it's like such a tough balance to strike where you are trying at once to meet the moment. And the moment is obvious. If you want to hire someone better in the same role in which you have someone right now, decent odds and money says you can find that person uh, and they will actually want to work for you because there's so few jobs that are out there now and that you can pay less for the person than what you are paying for the person in the seat today. And, and yet you are reluctant to kind of turn over the whole team or whatnot. And so I wonder, you know, how you think about uh, striking the balance on the talent war moving forward for those companies who have a strong balance sheet and actually have the opportunity to play offense, but are nervous about what that does to the current team. Should they see a, a lot of upheaval uh, in the, in the current market? Well, so what I've seen is, yeah, just clear expectations. The the best leaders are doing, um, are doing two things. One, they are thinking about this. How do I improve my uh, talent uh, at a lower cost? And I think they're articulating it, not by telling you know you the graveyard is full of irreplaceable men, but instead by saying what are the indicators of success, so that you can be that you so that you're hitting that 150 percent quota, um, and you're just being those top people. Um, maybe one area where this is happening right now is in engineering that folks aren't talking that much about as well is the shift to, to offshoring of engineering talent. So this is not the classic case of, hey, we'll open the team in India. It's no, I need 10 more killer engineers, but I'm gonna hire them in Buenos Aires because I'm gonna go build a whole big site there because I think that's always gonna be a lower cost place than the US, regardless of if I'm hiring in San Francisco, New York or Detroit. And I what's, the best leaders in both cases are doing is they are what they're doing uh, downward is showing a vision of the company that they they want that they that everybody wants to be in high velocity high results what does that exactly mean which is easy to say but hard to articulate real well but that's that's one piece and then frankly they are then making changes by moving out constantly what they think are the bottom half of that talent pool and just finding good graceful reasons to let those people go and hiring back in the top and telling people like you're you're hiring the best people i think it's that simple it, it it's uh and it's that hard for everybody that's in the meat grinder between the two yeah i mean it is it is a um it is a period of reset and i think that the cultural reset is um is best done communicated extremely transparently and i think that there are ceos who are trying to strike a middle ground where they want to like retain the fluff uh elements of the fluff while not you know kind of killing all of it but then also kind of transitioning and i and I think being extremely transparent about the fact that this is a performance-driven culture, only the very best people are going to are going to make it, and that that's kind of the way it's going to roll, not just now, but in the future. And so that you shouldn't think of, you know, your colleagues as your brothers and your sisters. This is not a family. 
this is a championship team. And in much the same way as, you know, I think if you look at your classic examples of the most successful sports teams, New England Patriots or, or Los Angeles Lakers or whatnot, you know, every spot was being competed for every single day. Like there were three people on the bench who were, who would literally do anything in order to take your starting spot. And so if you wanted to retain a starting spot on the Los Angeles Lakers or on the New England Patriots, you better be the best of the best and the best and show up and prove it every day. And when you didn't, you were sent packing no matter who you were, you know, like, and, and this idea that like certain people are untouchable or that, you know, certain, you know, certain departments are untouchable or whatnot is just gone. Like, it doesn't matter how good you were last year. You need to be better this year because the bar is higher and because the, the, the number of people that are coming for your job are higher. And I think that just like embracing the reality of the situation frees the company to operate in the way that it can actually be most successful. You know, I don't know anything about sports ball uh, or any of those teams whatsoever. I assume they're all hockey. Um, the, But as we settle on this topic, I'm realizing how sympathetic I am to not only the change of wartime versus peacetime CEO, but really what as you've been talking reflecting like what it's meant to be a leader over the last few years and you can get it comp- comically wrong in this transition but you're 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 right what is generally speaking has not been the gestalt is not the let me show you the grind even if many people successful ceos under the covers that's what they goddamn do and that's how they're successful but that just not that's not what it's been about showcasing and how big of a a shift that that is that now that's what's that's the kind of leadership that's necessary that's what's getting exposed because you're having to clearly articulate hey this is why we've cut 50 percent of the team is because we're we're going to just focus on this product area and so the uh the hardness of that fact um is showing through and showing up uh, much more so and 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 I want to jump into something there because another point of friction and conversation that I see on Twitter and on LinkedIn, uh, other places is you know X and X and Y company raised a hundred million dollars last year, and now they're laying off thirty percent of their team, and there's some equivocation of gross mismanagement. This idea that like if you have a hundred million dollars, then why do you need to lay off thirty percent of the team, and and the lack of understanding that it's not about how much money you have in the bank. That's not what should dictate how many people you have, you know, and maybe you who sees this much more so than I do, though, I'm happy to speak about it from a personal basis, though, you, you see it across uh, many portfolio companies can maybe explain in just like the most layman's terms you know, today you hear these terms like burn multiple and, and, and efficiency of a business and whatnot, like as a, as a VC, as you're advising, as an investor that is advising your portfolio companies, how are you advising them to think about the fact that like, let's say for example, my burn is a million dollars a month and I have a hundred million dollars in the bank. So presumably the company can run for, you know, what is that? Eight years, seven years, uh, and, and it won't quote unquote go out of business yet. A company in that position might yet still choose to cut 30% or 50% 
percent of their team. Why would they choose to do that? Like maybe you can just explain that a little bit because I think for a lot of folks they're confused or they're conflating the amount of money you have in the bank with how many people you can afford to keep and teams you can afford to run. I think the best CEOs are looking at how is their company going to be valued in the next round of financing, whether that's a series A, B, or IPO. And they are building the company so that it meets those metrics. Therefore, it's not about the amount of dollars they have in the bank or how long that company could survive with those dollars. It is how much money does it take us to get a customer how much is that money is that customer going to give us this year, next year, subsequent years? And showing the, the machine of that, how are we investing to get these customer dollars is the thing that matters. Because it's not just about surviving or being able to run with the money you've got in the bank and then hitting the ground. That's not the goal. And you need to build that machine and show that machine is working to then uh, both operate efficiently and therefore not for three years, but for six or eight or 10 and be a, that much bigger company, never raising more money, or to be able to, to raise money with 20 million in the bank and showing this very efficient machine. So the goal is different. The goal is not to employ people for a longer period of time. The goal is to be able to show how that machine is working. And the best CEOs are very aware of that. And they are not operating with, and their boards are not letting them, and their executive teams are not letting them operate with the idea of hope that hey, those multiples or the way that we're perceived in the market is just going to magically shift. So we have to make these changes now. I'll tell you a funny example of this. I was talking to another board member who is involved in a company. The company has $120 million in the balance sheet. It's a lot of money. The company is valued at several billion dollars. The company makes, I don't know, six or 10 or $15 in revenue. I mean, it makes nothing. And the board member was was telling me over dinner, they felt bad because they're trying to figure out like, what to do because nothing they could do with $120 million was going to get them to these multi-billion dollar outcomes. So my first instinct was number one, shame on you, dumbass. How did you let this company get into this circumstance and you're going to hurt all these people, period. And number two was also sympathetic because I just don't think they're gonna do anything. Like what the company should really do, they should probably strip down to an incredibly small number of people with $120 million in the bank and try and find something that really could matter. But instead they're gonna keep running, burning four and a half million dollars a month because of the inertia of the idea that they've got, even though it's probably never going to never going to become a big business. And so that's what you're trying to avoid is these fail cases. And they're big numbers, but the same thing is actually true if you're 3 million in the bank and, you know, I don't know, 150K burn. You're trying to make these decisions. And the best companies, you know, live through these things and they get 
hardened by these things and then they grow and then they become public and then they do the same shit just uh, <laughs> as a public company because some of this is the uh the back and forth of a business building so first of all i thought that was a really thoughtful answer around how to think about what the next milestone is. I want to dig into one specific part of it. I I do want to actually comment on a bunch of other stuff that you said, but I actually think that there's one really important nuance that is missed outside of those who are in the boardroom, which is that there used to be a playbook on how to raise future rounds of funding. And so let's just use a super generic example. Let's say company X, uh, you know, raised uh, money last year and they did $10 million in revenue, right? 10 million in ARR. Without fail, without really thinking about it, they could just set a target of between 25 and 30 million in revenue for this year because yep. the conventional wisdom was, you know, you kind of three, 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 two, two to a hundred million. That just parlance means that you, uh, you go 1 million, then 3 million, then 10, you're tripling revenue. So 1 million, 3 million, 10 million, 30 million. And then you kind of double it. So you go 30 to 60, 60 to hundred. And so there's this idea that you go three, 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 two, two is what it was known or is known as in this, in the startup land. And so companies were just, okay, if you did 30, 10 million last year, you, did, you have to do 30 million this year. Nobody cared how much it costs to get there. There was no calculus of like to get from 10 to 30, that's rate adding $20 million in a year for a company that in its history has only done 10. So you're actually trying to, you know, 2X the cumulative effort of the entire company. You know, to do that, you might have to spend $60 million or $50 million, but it doesn't matter. That wasn't important. Maybe a hundred million didn't matter because as long as you could get to 30 million, you could show that you were tripling revenue and someone would give you $500 million and you could just keep playing that game. But now we we at Bravado uh, throughout our sales community refer to 2022 as the year the music stopped. And the reason we refer to it that way is because when the music stops, it's then nobody knows quite how to do the next dance move, right? Nobody knows what the next move is. And so this idea that, you know, if if you no longer can raise that extra 100 million or 200 million or whatever that you were expecting were you to go from 10 to 30 in a super unprofitable way, then the question becomes, well, okay, what should the target be for this year? And then the question is, if I get to that target, will I actually be able to fundraise again? And the reality is that you don't really know. There isn't certainty any longer that you could fundraise again. And so I think you said it there uh, uh, quickly, which is this idea that many companies, including us, are operating with the principle that we will never be able to raise again. The money that we have on our balance sheet plus whatever profit that we can make from our customers is the totality of money that we will ever have to make Bravado successful. And when you look at it through that time horizon, it doesn't matter if you have 50 or 100 or whatever million in the bank, that money starts going really, really fast if you can't add any more capital to it except from your own customers. And so that really does change the game in in a way that uh, you know many CEOs find difficult to embrace, and certainly many employees uh, have no idea kind of what's going on outside the boardroom. There, there are two things. One, there are some companies that are exactly that. We have some small companies in our portfolio that are good at what I call cockroaching up. They they can really trim back and they can survive with customer revenue. And there's some people on the other extreme that need to slim down, get profitable, so that they can slowly, steadily grow revenue and one day they'll go public. 
in another market in another year. I think most good startups will be able to raise money if they can show efficient growth and you can you can operate to that plan but but in that that quick statement efficient growth there's a there's a lot that means that your product is truly getting pulled into the market and you can really see how people are spending more and more on it and you're just winning in a very large category so you're just one of these truly a plus companies because you the because the leverage in your business is is starting is starting to, to really show up and then you can raise money potentially against that story um and I, and I think actually you have to find a way for which that is true in most startups because you you still caveat that first group very early cockroach up or very late you just gotta you gotta right size yourself you have to grow you have to grow uh, as a business and you have to believe you've figured out it might be you might be building a two billion dollar company not a 20 billion dollar company you might have to do this over three years not over 18 months but i still think you have to show the signals of growing to be a venture-backed business Again, there's a lot loaded into that venture back business. It might be where you go discovers we're a $20 million, we grow 20% a year business. And it just means you're not a venture business anymore. And by the way, there, there, are, there are a lot of those sort of, we call them zombie companies. It's not fair, but they, they tend to, not always, but they tend to run out of momentum. They tend to run out of talent and they tend to get sold for one X revenue one day. Um, yeah, I think it's the, it, it, we, again, Bravado uh, makes its money through, um, uh, through a, a talent marketplace and many uh, talent businesses have ended up this way. You know, many talent marketplaces have basically stalled out in a very similar way because it is so difficult to build a venture scale business on the back of recruiting. Uh, and, you know, you look at like Darlings, like AngelList, who basically, you know, uh, got so fed up of the AngelList talent brand dragging down the future of the company that they spun it out and turned it into like WellFound or whatever it is now and hired and Vettery. And there's all these startups that basically didn't make it to the categories of the companies that really did, which of course are LinkedIn, the, the one that everyone knows. And I get Indeed as the other one that people really know. And a lot of these kind of companies have stalled out and the recruiting space and and so you see that in in a lot of spaces in the silicon valley again for those who maybe are just slightly uh, outside of tech tech companies often have like a, a constitution or a founding document which is known as the mvv in many ways which is mission vision values and so it's the mission of the company what are you looking to you know what is the what is the problem you're trying to solve in the world your vision which is how are you going to get there what are you going to build that's going to solve this problem and then values which is who are the people how are you going to build it what is the culture that you hope to set and i think there's been a real disturbance on that last i mean certainly there's been a disturbance in the mission and vision part too but that that I think we've touched on enough. You know, the topic of this specific podcast is on the people side, um, or this episode is on the people side, and so uh, on the values. So I wanted to actually share Bravado's core values, which we updated for ourselves. And just for context, we're you know a small fifty-person startup. We're not a we're not a um, a, a very large organization, but we ourselves uh, 
found herself looking at our core values and then looking at the market and looking at how we wanted to operate and realizing that there was some dissonance. And so took the time to actually kind of re-clarify, re-articulate what those values are. And I'll share a couple of them. They're on our website. They're, they're publicly known. But I want to share a couple of them just to show you you know, kind of the changes that are happening. And so we have six core values at Bravado, purpose before action, be fearless, get shit done, find solutions, not problems, put your sales hat on and enjoy the ride. And what we did was we didn't change any of them. They're the same six core values that we have had since, you know, essentially the founding of the company. But that what we did was we redefined them so that every person who worked at Bravado clearly understood what they meant in today's context. And so, you know, as, a, as an example, I'll just do two um, purpose before action invest the time up front to think deeply about what we're going to do. We have limited resources, so each bet must be thoughtfully made. Do fewer things, do each better. And so this idea of like regimenting focus as the number one priority in today's economic climate and the way we're going to build this business, I think spoke to some of the stuff you were talking about earlier and, you know, whatnot. And so that that was one one piece there. And then I think, you know, another one, which this one uh, changed a little bit as well, this idea of enjoy the ride. So enjoy the ride, again, can kind of feel a little bit fluffy as you know, dissonant to what we are talking about. And so uh, clarifying it, you know, if you take energy out of the room, you'll find yourself outside the room. If you bring energy to your coworkers, peers, and managers, you'll find yourself with greater power and responsibility in this org. When times are dark, be the light in the room, bring joy every day. So this idea that that belief is so important and a time in which there is so much negativity swirling around tech and startups and layoffs. And, you know, I think there, there was a, a, a tweet thread by Tom Lavaro of IVP where he talked about how he thinks that there will be all these mass casualties of startups and there was a ton of coverage that that got as well. Basically, all the only things that are getting covered today are negative news about tech, right? That's what's getting coverage. And we've obviously spoken about that. And so this idea that optimism and inspiration and, and belief and putting energy back into the machine is something that we will actively reward at this organization and that people who are detracting from that will find themselves outside of the org. Um, no matter how talented you are, no matter how gifted you are, that if you are sucking the energy out of the room, then you can't be in the room. And so like a counterbalance of like some ways that we shifted what enjoy the ride might have meant in 2021 to what it means today in 2023. I love that. I love that the actual uh, statements are, are, the, are the same one, the same uh, enjoy the ride, purpose before action, excuse me. I, I love that those have stayed the same but the, how that they're interpreted has changed. Like that's like that's the level of that's the consistency that you want to have. You can imagine a world where someone has a has a very tight phrase for how they are customer oriented that fits in their in their verbiage, and you might have at Brex shifted from be responsive to every customer need to understand exactly who our customer is and why we're there to serve them like these small twists that are about focus and about doing the the, the current job the best for, for this is the the economic setup that we've got right and that's what i see the best companies doing they're not changing their culture 
they're taking these same ideals they've got and they're shifting them for this for this time and they're doing it in a way that, that they're getting everybody rebought in because this is the team that is going to have to take on this mission uh and move forward on this mission to together and so uh i love that part you know the, i there's a there's there are a set of people that are going through this process and are going and are, are getting a little bit lost or having like completely reinvent the i know you love the folks that are all about generative ai as their new thing that's going to save us i see that i see the cultural equivalent of that um and i just don't think it's going to work it's because you didn't have something consistent to begin with you kind of got to go back to what's the best thing uh about your culture your dna your folks even if there are fewer folks in the room period right now that's 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 why i think the best companies are doing and then th those people they're gonna hire a few more folks they're gonna attract people that are really good fits for exactly what they what they want in their level of um the of the kind of commitment they want from those teams the message was incredibly well received at bravado and uh you know got got met with this understanding that like okay you know the world has changed bravado makes its money uh by helping salespeople find jobs there aren't a lot of jobs out there and so we're going to need to we're going to need to really quickly uh, think about what that means for us as a business and that we're going to need to find um, ways in which we can serve our membership and our audience uh, at a time at which, you know, many sales professionals are struggling and trying to figure out what to do next. And it's harder than ever to hit a quota and whatnot. And so this rallying cry moved away from it being centered around us as a business and brought really uh, intimately to the membership that we seek to serve. And I think similarly, you know, there's this idea of customer obsessiveness that, as I think you mentioned, is is kind of thrown around in the Silicon Valley as as um as a buzzword. But but I think in moments when things are tough, it is so critical to just be customer obsessive and like start to think, well, the world has changed for us as a business, but we're one tiny speck in the sea. The world has changed for all of our customers too. And if we can help them meet that world, and so the way we did that at Bravado, just to kind of close the loop is, you know, a lot of companies aren't hiring anymore. That doesn't mean that they don't want to acquire new customers or grow revenue or whatever. It just means they can't hire them full-time. So we spun up a freelance gig marketplace where salespeople who can't find a full-time job can partner with a company that can't afford to hire them full-time and, and work together on consulting agreements and, and short-term contracts and whatnot. And we saw revenue start to pick up really quickly on the business and, and we're in a much better place now than we were a few months ago. But the reason why we were able to do that is because we stayed super close to the very same customers who were no longer hiring and the same members who no longer could find a job in order to try to come up with unique ways for them to interface with one another. And, and I would encourage every company, every entrepreneur, every executive to take a really hard look in the mirror and say, you know, in this moment, how can we accelerate? How can we build something? Not how can we not just survive, right? We could have just cut costs and been like, we'll just, you know, run, we'll cut pricing and we'll like, you know, like there were there were things that we could have done that were defensive. And we did certainly play some defense, to be clear. But really, I I mean, I I'm a salesperson, I like to play offense. And so how can we play offense in this market? How can we use the moment that our customers are in, our members are in, in order to 
give so much value to them that they are happy to pay uh, us in exchange for it because we're actually creating something really unique that they need and want. This is a, is a beautiful symmetry on the, on the venture side. I'm just about to send a note to our whole founder mailing list, which is talking about the fact on the venture side, of course, every stage, the biggest thing that we see is we see deals happening, but they're all taking more time. People have the opportunity to do more diligence. What's really going on is we see people building a base case of, hey, I've talked to all the customers. We think we're going to have this much revenue. I really believe the revenue numbers for, say, this year and that's my base case as a vc and that's why this company is going to get a 3x mark in the next round or is going to have its growth that's that's a venture partners um uh discussion around the partnership and then the upside case is so i've got that base and then the upside that moves this to a 5 or 15x or 50 depending on what you're doing is this clever thing that's an actual compounding value and so we, we have a company like this, sort of a series B, C stage company that's been working hard and closing a couple, you know, now almost 30 million in revenue. Their base case is they're actually only going to grow only probably 2x over the next few years, but they're really going to be harvesting all the dollars from this very complex, very compliance oriented, very hard thing they built. And so therefore, um, that's their base case that we're actually going to have a profitable business next year. And then they're, they're, but they've raised money on the next thing that they can go build. And you're going to see how that's a very simple venture view. Like I'm underwriting this company that's going to have a 90% margin, pull out cash, growing not that fast, not A plus venture dollar fast, but then they have this next thing this team can also do. And that, and that's how that, that underwrite uh is happening and but it all starts with this the customer obsession so it's sort of funny how these very simple ideas just come come back around thank you so much for listening to what could possibly go wrong i'm sahil mansuri founder of bravado and i'm ross fubini founder of XYZ Venture Capital. We believe that a positive mindset leads to success, and we're committed to sharing that with you through this podcast and other channels. So if you like what you heard, please rate the show, invite your friends to listen and follow us, and of course, let us know. You know where to find us on all the socials. What Could Possibly Go Wrong is produced by Sound Made Public with Tanya Katenjin, Philip Wood, and Claire Mullen. Music from Blue Dot Sessions.